Welcome to the Molecular Moments Podcast. In today's episode, we sat down with guest scientist, Dr. Benoit De Silva, Vice President of Leads Discovery and Optimization at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Benoit has more than 25 years of experience within the pharmaceutical industry, having spent a significant amount of time at pharma giants, Amgen and BMS. She's been highly involved in the pharmaceutical industry and more specifically in bioanalysis for much of her career. She and I had a great discussion about her career, how she made the leap from her home country of Sri Lanka to Kansas and to a career on both coasts. Also, we talked about her industry leadership and the hobbies that she has used to help fill her time during the quarantine. So without further ado, here is the third episode of Molecular Moments. Benoit really was excited to have you on as a guest today. We have a ton of topics that I want to cover with you. One of the first things that I always like to open with in my discussions is to talk a little bit about your career path, kind of starting probably, you know, what led you into the scientific field, what got you interested in science and what one story that you related to me that I'd love it if you would uh, share with the audience is how you made it from Sri Lanka to Kansas, right? Go Rock Chalk Jayhawk. So uh, if you could just kind of give us a little bit of background, that, that'd be uh, great. I'd appreciate that. Thank you, Chad. Thank you for this opportunity. And I'm hoping that this will, you know, stimulate discussions between our bioanalytical community and others who's listening to really get into the sciences. So because it's it's such a fantastic area to be part of. So I grew up in Sri Lanka. I was born to parents who are also science teachers. My mother was a chemistry teacher and my father was a physics teacher. However, I have to say that we were never, ever forced to go into science. So for those of you who do not know Sri Lanka, it is a tiny island in the southern coast of India. It is very famous for its Ceylon tea and blue sapphires. So when I got admission to come to the United States, I got admission to come to the University of Kansas. Now, for a Sri Lankan who looks at the United States, we don't know anything about United States except for New York and Los Angeles, right? So that's all the United States is for someone from a tiny island in Asia. And so when I said I was going to Kansas, people were like, where, where, what, what, what is Kansas? So you had to take a map out and really show that it's the heart of uh, the United States. That's, that's where we are coming. But it was an experience explaining to people where Kansas was. I recall you also telling me that there was some sort of a university recruiting mission or you were identified. I have this vision of a number of uh, suited up professors showing up and finding <laughs> the really smart students and point, pointing out Benoit in the classroom. And- <laughs> so it was a very, very thoughtful and organized effort. There were 13 universities represented from the United States and some professors took turns to come to to visit the different universities in Sri Lanka. They went to India, uh, Bangladesh, and other countries as well. What they did was they came to our universities. So Sri Lanka at that time had five major universities that worked in the science areas. And so what they did was when they came, they interviewed us. Our faculty from our universities gave the names 
to the professors and then they interviewed us. So this was a very good experience for all of us to understand what happens in the United States and also be part of a community that really looked into the talent in the Asia uh, Pacific countries to bring to the United States. Now, it was not a guarantee that just because they interviewed us that we got a position in these universities. We had to apply. Once we applied, that was sort of also a recommendation for us to say, okay, we can be considered for these uh, universities. So that's how it worked out. So we applied. And then the other opportunity that we also had was we also got to review the research of the different professors of these universities. And that was a tremendous help to all of us to just at least get to know these professors. And so that's how I got accepted to the University of Kansas. And actually, I wanted to work with Dr. Wilson, who was in Arizona before. But when I joined the group, he had moved to Kansas uh, with a distinguished Higuchi professorship at the University of Kansas. And your, your academic training was as a chemist, right? Not as a biologist or a biochemist? I got my undergraduate in chemistry, analytical chemistry. So we follow the British system of education. So when we go to our universities, we take four subjects. So I did chemistry, zoology, botany, and physics. So that's how you get to the university. Once you get to the university, we take on three subjects. And I did chemistry, biology, zoology for two years. And then you have to do exams and you get selected whether you, whichever one you want to do. And I got selected to do all three. So I have an interesting story there. I'll tell you. It was interesting because I got selected to all three. And the way they advertise this is they put it in a bulletin board. They list out the people who got selected to what they call the special degrees. So I got selected to all three and I looked in my chemistry list and I was the only woman. All the rest of my colleagues, there were 12 of us. All the rest were boys, the guys, young men. So I said, no, I'm not going to deal with these guys. So I decided I was going to do botany because I loved to work in the national forest. So I said, "Okay, I'll go sign up for botany. And um, I went and signed up for the botany special. And I just said, no, I'm not going to do chemistry special. At that time, our uh, dean of the faculty was a, a chemistry professor, Dr. Pereira. And I got a call from her to come and see her in her office and you know, when you are called to the dean's office, you're you're not sure why are you being called for. So um, I went, and she sat me down, and she gave me this long lecture of why I didn't choose chemistry. So I had to listen to her. I was honest. I told her the re- only reason I didn't go into chemistry was because I was not going to deal with these eleven boys. You know, so I was just like, oh, I don't want to deal with these guys. And she kind of read me the right act. And last thing I know is I'm in chemistry. Well, I think as we continue to tell your story here, it'll be clear that uh, I'm glad and that uh, it's great for the bioanalytical and the pharmaceutical industry that you ended up in chemistry. And as a chemist myself, who's recently moved into more of a large molecule uh, world, immunoassays and flow cytometry and all that, you know, I like to see another chemist who made that switch. You made it obviously much uh, earlier in your career than I did, but uh, you had some great timing, right? You were a pioneer, I think, clearly coming from Sri Lanka to Kansas. You started out in the center of the United States, 
you jumped left coast in a little while, we'll get to the right coast, right? Tell me about your experience at Amgen. You, you had gr- great timing. That's going to be a theme that I'm going to pick up on in another space. We had great timing, I think, going to Amgen when it was exploding as one of the first and uh, most successful uh, biotech companies uh, ever. Yes. Yeah, so that was incredible opportunity. I am so glad I got that opportunity. So I started my career at Procter & Gamble Pharmaceuticals. I can't forget that. I mean, that's where I got my industry foundation. And there, you know, I got the privilege of working with Dr. Tony DiStefano, who was amazing uh, supervisor. And then I also got to work with one of the most inspiring supervisors I ever had, Miss Mike Beaufitz. She was very, very good in letting us grow in every which way that she could think of uh, possible. So then when I got the opportunity to go to Amgen, it was like night and day from Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble was this company, 100 plus years old and a very traditional company. And then I go to the West Coast, uh, to Amgen, which is the biotech hub and really entrepreneurial, flexible, I mean, highly, highly scientific organization that I had the privilege of working. I learned so much there, not just being in a biotech, how to make decisions quickly, how to move projects quickly. That was their entrepreneurial nature. I mean, if they didn't do what they did at that time, it would have been just impossible to be where they are today. I mean, there's always the debate, right, between whether it's Amgen or Genentech, but I think both companies are great companies, but Amgen, you know, I have the experience with Amgen. They were so much in the forefront of getting things done. Uh, You could do anything cutting edge and you were not told, no, you can't do it. I mean, you just had to do it and prove to them that you couldn't do versus you sit around and think about it. That's where I first came to know you. And a lot of that was in meetings, talking about regulatory development. I, when, when I talk about the history of bioanalytical, uh, well, I think of that so, somewhere in that 2000 to 2008 period is like the, re, the renaissance for the regulations, right? We were, we were doing so much with new regulations. And a big part that you played was in helping the ligand binding regulations to catch up with the small molecule uh, LCMS uh, regulations in a smart way. That's what I recall is that you would bring a lot of common sense uh, along with uh, Gene Lee and, and many others at that time who were, who were pioneers. So what motivated you to, to get involved in that aspect? Because that's just extra. That's, that's extra work that you had to do that doesn't really move you forward in, in your day to day at Amgen. You know, once again, it's it all got started also in um, early days of Procter and Gamble, right? I was doing small molecule assays, but with a ligand binding. Right? I, my first project was residunate. It was a bisphosphonate. It stuck to everything, glass, stainless steel, everything, right? So my assay development work started with a ligand binding assay for residunate. So that's where we got started. And then as we were working on that, we quickly realized that there were no guidance. There was no, we were really trying to fit our assay data to the chromatography acceptance criteria, which was impossible to do. I was not alone. So I have to give a lot of credit 
to the behemoths of ligand binding assays, Ronald Bauscher, John Finley, Jean Lee. I mean, I was not alone. I had the tremendous support from all of those people to get going. And then when I got to Amgen, it was also that, okay, now we had, I was working on epigen and I couldn't match my criteria to any of the small molecule acceptance criteria. My total errors were in the 30%. Unheard of, right? I mean, if you tell that to a chromatographer, they'd be like, what are you doing? So we had all these issues. But Chad, the thing is, they were practical issues, right? There was a huge matrix effect. There's so much endogenous EPO, and I'm trying to measure epigen as a recombinant protein. So it's not just finding regulations or finding acceptance criteria for the sake of doing it. It is also because we had a huge need, right? We didn't know how to do our assays and we couldn't fit any of this into this criteria because we had so many technical problems. So you had to overcome those on top of trying to fit some number, right? At the end of the day, it's a number that we are trying to fit, but where what the steps that you have to take to get to that is really a lot of work. So that's how I got started. And then when we were talking and then the guidance came out in 1999 for small molecules, right? Um, the sharp paper and then the guidance. And then we were like nowhere. So there, has, there was a little bit of radioimmunoassay work, right? That Ron and all of those people have done. So then we got together in Ron's kitchen in Indiana place to talk about what do we do, right? So that's how it got started. You know, Penny made us dinner or snacks or whatever. That was, that's how ligand binding assay focus group started at Ron's kitchen table in Indiana. And from there, we started talking about all the issues we had. Then we felt like we had a community that was struggling with all these things, right? And also that was the, you know, Timing is everything, you know, that's what you were saying. And that was the time that we were getting these biologics as therapeutics, right? So EPO was there before I started at Amgen, but this was picking up to be a therapeutic. Biologics were becoming therapeutics as well as small molecules. So there was a need. And then we felt like we had a community to really sit around and gripe about all our assay problems. That's what it led to. Then we got together as a group, Russ Wiener, Marianne Kelly. I mean, all of us got together and we were really trying to solve the problems that we actually had in the lab. That is what led to all the conversations and the community. I love that story. And it brings me to something that I was going to mention to you or ask you about. But first, I want to say, you know, Binod, uh, you are one of the behemoths of large molecule bioanalysis as well. I mean, there's uh, there's no doubt about it. I recall not too long ago, I visited you at BMS. And, and when I came back, I told one of the scientists in the lab that uh, we had sat down and and talk for a while. And, and she said, oh my gosh, I can't, you met Benod Da Silva. Oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's funny about analysis. I, I don't know, you know, because this is the industry I know, but, uh, but there's certainly, you know, there's sort of this, uh, you look at the previous generation or that in the, the generations are shorter, right? They're not the generations we think of, you know, normally, but maybe they're five to 10 year space. But one of the stories I also recall hearing from 
I'll say a guy I'll say is in my generation, right? Uh, with uh, Chris Beaver uh, that we both know well. He told me once uh, that he had gone out to Amgen and had had dinner at your house. So now I'm hearing about you know, dinner with Ron Bauscher's house and dinner at your house. Is this a like combining <laughs> thing? We didn't do this in the small molecule space. No, you guys didn't. <laughs> so yes, we, we used to, I mean, like it's a family, right? We were small, we were a small, co- and we knew about each other's birthdays, the anniversaries. And, you know, so Mary and Kelly, she used to like cook for Russ and me because, you know, the 2003 paper, when we had to uh, write the paper and there was a time that I used to fly from California because both uh, Marion and Russ were in um, in the East Coast. So I would fly out here to r- start writing the paper and Marion would cook for us. So we had dinner there. It, it, so it was it was a family. Yeah. So <laughs> it was nice. That's amazing. So let's step forward to, I think it was around 2010 that you landed at BMS. And I was thinking, wow, you landed at BMS right around when I recall BMS was shifting their product portfolio from being a small molecule company to being a large molecule company. And then shortly thereafter, Opdivo, the Evo was acquired. And then, and then that, you know, a few years later was approved. So you know, are you, are you, um, somehow seeing the future here for these opportunities, or how did you how did you end up in another great opportunity like that at BMS? Blame it on Russ Wiener. <laughs> I love to blame it on Russ Wiener. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, love him. Um, so Russ was um, so you know Russ and I've known each other for a long time, right? So and then uh, Russ was going to leave BMS and go to Merck he had got a great opportunity to go work on personalized medicine at Merck. So he called me up and said, you know, why don't you come and check this opportunity out at BMS? I'm like, no, Russ, I can't move the whole family, you know, coast to coast. And he's like, what's your problem? Just come on over. And so and said no. And then, then he left to go to Merck. I, I had forgotten about the whole thing, but he kept insisting I come and check it out. One day I came and I checked it out. They had just bought Medrex in 2009. I think about September timeframe is when they had bought Medrex and they had this portfolio of monoclonal antibody therapeutics that was going to be persecuted for development. I didn't know at that time, but at the interview, they told me that and they said that it was, you know, important that we have a bioanalytical group that also focused on monoclonal antibody therapeutics as well as biologics. So that's how I got the position at BMS since I joined. So the very first molecule we did work on was Yevoy you know, the anti-CTLA4 molecule and then came along Optivo and, you know, Nivolumab and so forth, and a lot of other products that came after that. Can you tell us a little bit about what a checkpoint inhibitor is? Because not everybody does know what a checkpoint inhibitor is and Devo and why that was so revolutionary in the industry for biologics. Okay. So if you look at our immune system, right, it's there to protect us, right? I mean, so that is our main, main defense system. So the way the immune system works is in two parts. So we are born with a system in us that we have the immediate ability to really fence off any organisms, anything foreign, just to protect us. You know, and this and our skin is like probably the the most important one. 
So then we also has something called the adaptive immune system where it learns how to protect us. So in that, there is something called a humoral immune system, which is mediated by antibodies. And then there is a cell-mediated immune system, which is using some of our immune cells to protect us. So both of these systems come into play when there is a foreign thing that come into attack us. So what happens is the Immune system can also sometimes attack on yourself that we call autoimmunity. And that's not a good thing, right? So usually the immune system doesn't attack our own cells. So the purpose of our cancer targeting immune therapy is to really modify our own immune system to realize that the cancer cell is a foreign thing and then we can attack it. So you're really using our own immune system to showcase that the cancer cell is a foreign body. And then, to, so that's how in some ways these immune therapies work. And then there is another um, group of white blood cells that we call immune checkpoints. Now they can also tell the immune system to ignore, right? So the checkpoint inhibitors are basically what they're saying. It's like they are the checkpoint inhibitors are the ones that prevent in some ways the immune system from attacking. So that's what we use for PD-1 and PDL one that is Obdivo, that is the molecular break that prevents the immune system from attacking its own cells. And then another type is the CTLA-4, the cytotoxic cells, T-cells, and that is Yervoi. That is, that is the mechanism of your voice. When you started looking at these large molecules within BMS, how do you come into an organization? Obviously, the, you know, with Russ before, he had laid some groundwork, but coming into an organization and transforming it from a small molecule to a large molecule organization, that's not a small undertaking. And I think you, you had certainly a big part in that. So can you tell me, and maybe even broader, just your experience with overhauling an organization, ways that, you know, maybe we can learn a little bit from you. So it's all about people. I mean, I will, no matter who says what, it's all about the scientists who work on this. And that's who brings the organization to life, really. So when I came and we didn't have a lot of people who knew large molecule work. However, we had a tremendous organization in the small molecules under the leadership of Mark Arnold. We had the scientific breadth in the small molecule bioanalysis, not in the large molecules. So what we had to do was we literally sat around a table and looked at who do we have? What are the strengths that we bring to the table? And we laid out a list of people, their expertise, and we went about and said, who don't we have? And we actually complemented our strengths with the strengths that we didn't have. So like we didn't have a hardcore immunologist and then we didn't have some biochemistry expertise. So we really had to put everybody together and say, this is what we're going to do and this is who we're going to hire. And the other big challenge I had with BMS was now I'm coming from Amgen, you know, right? The gold mine of resources that can handle large molecules. And here I come and we don't have reagents. So everybody in the large molecule area knows that without a reagent, you're dead in water. 
forget the assay, right? We had Medirex, a fantastic group of scientists and biologists who can give us therapeutic antibodies that could bind to anything, right? But I, on the other hand, I get these molecules from San Francisco Redwood City. I don't have a way of analyzing these molecules because I didn't have reagents. So I had to partner with the group in Redwood City who were developing the therapeutic antibodies to also say, as in parallel, can you please generate reagents for me? That was a little bit of an undertaking, but that's kind of what how we got started. So, Chad, really, I mean, what we had to do to transform the organization is to showcase what we had to do, gaps in what we didn't have, both in personnel as well as in the instruments and the reagents, and then formulate a story to tell to the senior management. I mean, I still remember, you know, my first couple of years here, every quarter, I had this PowerPoint one slide that I would present to my senior vice president saying, here are the strengths that we have, you know, just like a SWOT analysis, but not necessarily that way. Here are the strengths, here are the gaps, and here are the resources I needed. So I really constantly um, was up- updating him and keeping him abreast, you know. So I, I mean... I would say we had probably, when I started, we had probably about 29 molecules, therapeutic antibodies in the pipeline. We didn't have a way, you know, to go back and say, no, we can't support it because we had to support these molecules going forward. So that is one thing that I think was a hugely influential in getting these people together who had a common mission, as well as complementing one another with the strengths we had and uh, with the strengths that we had to bring in. And I can tell you, knowing many people in, you know, in the BMS large molecule organization, you focus not just on bringing in uh, brilliant people who are well-respected, but also uh, you focused a lot on bringing the right people, the right personalities to really make a team. Uh, and that's something that, uh, that, that you can see with your people and the respect they have for each other, the respect they have for you. So um, certainly that's an important piece as well, I guess. Yeah, I think it's it's one of the things, you know, as, as long as you can articulate a common vision and they rally behind you, you know, because you're doing something also for something bigger than yourself, right? I mean, the cumulative effect of everything what we do is for the patients. I mean, that's something BMS is really, really, pr- I'm really proud of BMS for the way they handle their not starving the patients. Yeah, there's no doubt when you visit your facilities that the patients are first and foremost, and that's exciting. And it's something that that I certainly try to keep at the front of my mind as well. We were just talking about that uh, today internally at Bioagelytics, thinking about the samples, right? That's every sample comes from a patient. And often, especially in large molecules, that sample may be even critical to their treatment, right? Absolutely. To look, to look at biomarkers, right? I mean, that same patient sample we may be using for multiple aspects and it's so precious. Every sample is precious. And maybe you can talk about the, uh, that as well, because that's certainly an area being a large molecule focused career, having a large molecule focused career as you have biomarkers, maybe in some ways, I'll say they lagged behind uh, therapeutics as far as the analysis and getting into uh, the bioanalytical labs and the regulation. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about the importance of biomarkers and how they played into uh, some of these therapeutics you uh, you worked on. 
So I think, you know, it's a good testament even to this day, right, that we have to have both together to really, the diagnostic is so important for the treatment purpose, right? So in the bioanalytical area, we are always thinking about the pharmacokinetics, you know, what is happening to the drug, but it's so also important to see what effect that drug had and that's where the biomarkers come in and I think you know if you look at the biomarkers as like the blood pressure I mean I I know a lot of people it's easier to understand the blood pressure that's a measurement that will tell you about how your heart condition is in some ways right in a similar manner just because you don't see a biomarker that's in a tube in a test tube that need to be analyzed it's as important as that blood pressure measurement yeah without a doubt I think also some people, you know, hype it up so much that it has to go hand in hand with the PKSs. Yes, it does. But at the same time, you have to give it as importance as a PKSA measurement or even better because that is your diagnostic. The doctor goes and say a doctor prescribes that diagnostic and that accuracy and the precision of that value is so important because then it depends on how the doctor will treat you? Without a doubt. I mean, the the clearest biomarker that uh, I have is every morning when I buckle my pants, I say, man, I've been uh, sitting at my desk snacking too much during COVID. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're tighter and tighter every day. So, uh, you know, but weight is an important biomarker of, uh, you know, for a lot of different diseases and treatments. Yeah. That's the other piece, right? For some of the biomarkers that you and I deal with, it's so in such low concentrations. So it's so important to measure it, but it's difficult to get accurate measurements. And sometimes, you know, you know, we argue about, is it the accuracy of that measurement or the precision? Because we probably don't have a gold standard for that measurement. Yeah. And I, you know, a few years ago at the, uh, there was the, uh, the, you know, so-called Crystal City meeting where, uh, for biomarkers, right? And I think one of the talks that uh, really sunk in for me was, I was talking about the, the precision that you need for biomarkers, maybe not nearly as good, but sometimes you might need much higher precision. And it's all about what you're looking at for that biological effect. And I think we talk about that a lot now in that biomarker space. And I think uh, uh, just to you know, reference the last guest on episode two, I had Marianne uh, Fjording, who, you know, is uh, you know one of the um, experts in, in biomarkers in the world. That's right. So I'll just reference back to that episode and say, if people want to learn more about biomarkers, listen to Marianne, because we talked quite extensively about biomarkers. I wanted to move to you to talk about AAPS a little bit and your involvement in AAPS and just understand why have you put so much into that particular organization? That was one of the organizations I joined as a graduate student. I've said this story many, many times. You know, once again, you don't have to do a lot. I mean, I asked the students today, don't go for, you know, big things. The little things also matter. I mean, I started in AAPS as a graduate student at the request of Dr. Susan Lunty to screen abstracts. That's what it was. So I was screening abstracts and I got into the organization. I learned a lot from there, screening abstracts, and then, you know, went through the ranks. Why is it important also was that community. There was, you know, even when I started as graduate student and did, I was in the APQ section when I started out. And the way they nurtured you, 
the way they supported you was huge. Sue Lanty, Craig Lanty, Tony Stefano, all of those people really took an interest in our careers as a person. And that really resonates with me. And that's what I kept going to because I felt like someone held their hand to me to rise to wherever I was at whatever time it could be. Right. You know, I'm always I always uh, tell Ron, you know, Ron, you you were there for me as a young so I knew Ron from graduate school because he, he helped he helped us with some uh, antibody generation uh, activities. OK, so I knew Ron from there because we were we had to make our own antibodies in a farm in Oletha, Kansas. You know, we used to go bleed the goats there. So, I mean, that was part of my graduate education, which is fun. You know, and we had rabbits. And so I knew Ron. He was at Lilly. I knew Ron when, because he, he knew how to make monoclonal antibodies and learn from there. So Ron, you know, from that day onwards, you know, he's been such a big mentor for me. And. AAPS provided that opportunity for me to kind of get to know people and they helped me. And I really want to, that. that's why I stick with some of these organizations to really pay it forward. You know, um, I'm a first generation immigrant. I didn't know anything about how to be in the United States, right? So, how, I mean, someone gave me an opportunity and that's what I hope that I do to other people. And that's kind of what, interest me in APS. You know, yes, I was able to drive science. I was able to participate in FDA involvement through AAPS. I would consider those as perks in some ways for me. But, you know, that got me going. And I owe it a lot to the pharmaceutical industry and to AAPS to give back to. So that's why I kind of really enjoy working with with, you know, CPSA, ACS, pharmaceutical, you know, AAPS. Um, so all, all of those communities, they give back. I couldn't agree more, Vinod. Uh, One of the things that I really enjoy tremendously is exactly what you're talking about, right? Who's sort of the next? Who can I help? Who can I give a hand up? And there's probably nothing more gratifying than seeing uh, people that you've worked with uh, and mentored to bring them up. And it's almost like you intentionally uh, gave me a segue to one of my favorite topics and that was something I always cover in these podcasts, which is the mentoring topic. And uh, everyone having listened to you now for uh for 35, 40 minutes uh, would say, wow, she must be a fantastic mentor. Uh, 100% right. <laughs> Thank you. So I just want to tell you one one other thing. So a couple of years ago, I did a WRIB interview and they asked uh, who who's your bioanalytical superhero? And, and I'm going to tell you, it may, you know, I don't know if it rings hollow now because I didn't say you. That's OK. I can't say a customer. I wanted to say Benoit De Silva, but you were a customer of mine. And I said, I, that wouldn't be right to say that. And I said, Gene Lee. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> I think another great fit, but you're definitely one of my mentors, uh, a bioanalytical superhero. Tell me you won an award for International Mentor of the Year Award, which is amazing, well-deserved. <laughs> Tell me about that. Tell me about a little more about your mentoring. You, you pointed to Ron Bauscher, so maybe that's the answer, but I want to hear a little more about mentors, people that were your mentors. There are a few people who I've been able to lean on. So one is, 
you know, big time Ron Bauscher, Tony Stefano, you know, Gene Lee early in my careers. And there are many, many, many more people who have guided me and brought me to where I am today. And I continue to be in touch with these folks because they have something always good to tell me. However, I also have people like Renuka, Johanna. I think, do you know Johanna very well? You know, there's another person at BMS, uh, Jerry Colliders. These are my mentors too. So I don't consider, I consider everybody who really guide me, help me as a mentor. I, you know, I learn, you know, my lifelong dreams is to be a lifelong learner. And Everybody that comes across will mentor me, coach me. So I, I regard the mentorship as a, you know, much more informal as well than formal mentors. I've had formal mentors as well. Bruce Carr comes to mind as a formal mentor at BMS that I had when I first started. He really guided me through a lot of the opportunities at BMS. There's another lady here at BMS, Lois, who I I lean on heavily. So I do have some uh, formal mentoring going on for me as well. I try to reach out to students mostly and the junior scientists in in BMS for mentoring. I mentor through the HBA, the uh, Healthcare Business Women's Association, and I participate in the Rutgers STEM initiatives here now. I've had some mentors at Rutgers and so many, many more uh, students in the AAPS mentoring as well as Bristol. I really like the comment about, you know, it's not always that somebody um, older or more experienced is mentoring down that you're talking about people that you hired, like, like Joanna, like, like Renuka, that they, they can mentor you and you can learn so much from them. I mean, because it does come from all directions and probably, yeah, one of the things that I've, I've missed in COVID being home is not having that real, you know, we, we do the discussions like this, which I was one of the reasons I was so looking forward to having the chance to talk to you because we just don't get to have these real conversations. Right. So I have really, really enjoyed this. I wanted to ask you about a couple of other things. I always like to get to know people a little more personally, learn something new about them. I've learned a lot of new things about you, but how about um, some of your hobbies? I know you're into hiking. Tell me about some of your hobbies and how those fit into your passions for everything you do. I love hiking and I haven't had a chance to do that in a long time, I would say. There are no mountains, not a lot of mountains in New Jersey. So I just do the small hikes here around, you know, there are some, but not not like we had in California. So that was, that was lovely. I like to get out anywhere I can, you know, outside. That's kind of my big thing because, you know, I told you before, right, I, w- I wanted to be a botanist. So I wanted to be in the rainforest with that professor, except, you know, I, I went into chemistry. So that was, that was one of the things. I like a good book, you know, curl up on a ch- you know, couch and read a book. That's, that's one of the good things. What's well, so well, your bed stand right now that somebody might want to pick up? The Culture Code, The Great Influencer are two books that I have right now. I got into um, audiobooks too. I had a long commute. I mean, long, 45 minutes commute at one point because when I was in uh, work for GPS in New Brunswick, I had a long commute. So I got into the audiobooks. So I, I kind of, I really like to listen to the audiobooks now. I, I, it took me a little bit to get used to. 
Right. I agree. And I listen to a different type of audio book from the books that I read. And, and I don't know if it's everybody, but the, you know, the lower, lower brow, less intellectual novels are the ones I listen to in my audio books, right? A, a spy novel or, a, or a, something like that. Michael Connelly books, things like that. <laughs> that's, that's what I would Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I actually downloaded um, The Gene from Siddha Mukherjee. I haven't listened to it yet. I downloaded that one. Let's see how, how far I go with that on an audio book versus reading it. So, Benoit, I had a, a list. There's so much more I could have unpacked with you. So much more we could talk about. Maybe in you know season three or four of this, I'll, I'll bring you back and we'll cover a few more topics because there's been, you know, your, your other career changes, the acquisitions, other other accomplishments you had. There's there's so much more to talk about. Uh, I could not thank you enough for joining me. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for helping me get this journey of podcasting started. You're my third uh, guest overall and my first non-co-worker guest. So I did a couple uh, trial runs with Jim McNally and, and Marianne Fjording. So uh, thanks again. And uh, Benoit, if you, if you have any uh, closing words or want to say hi to anybody. Yeah. Hi to all the colleagues of Bioanalytical, right? You know, so that's kind of where I started my career and um, I've moved around a little bit, but I can't say enough about the experiences I've got. I mean, one, one day we should talk about, you know, about the career choices because I was in bioanalytical, analytical, you know, GPS, and then now in early, early discovery where there's a target and I don't even know what will happen, you know, going forward to get it a drug. It's been a fantastic journey for me. So I really hope if anything out of this podcast, anybody listening, if anything they can um, take away is, you know, dream big, dream big and start small. I love it. Another quote to uh, to write down. Benoit, thank you so much. And we're going to um, close it out there. All right. Thank you so very much and look forward to many more opportunities to chat with all of you. Well, that's all for episode three. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss a conversation. If you'd like to hang out with us outside of the podcast, we have a ton of webinars and other presentations. Visit bioagilytics.com to see what's coming up and how you can stay in touch. Don't forget to keep an eye out for episode four, a conversation with CRO pioneer and healthcare financier, Mike Mortimer. We'll be talking about biotech financing, Brexit, and much more. Molecular moments would not be possible without the support of our sponsor, Bioagilytics Labs. Bioagilytics is a global contract research organization specializing in large molecule bioanalysis. Based in Durham, North Carolina, with labs in Hamburg, Germany, and Boston, Massachusetts, Bioagilytics provides high-quality bioanalytical services to leading pharma and biotech companies around the world. They offer assay development, validation, and sample analysis under non-GLP, GLP, and GCP, as well as GMP quality control testing. If you're looking to work with a team of highly experienced scientific and QA professionals through all phases of clinical development, look no further than Bioagilytics. For more information or to speak with their scientists today, visit their website at www.bioagilytics.com. Thanks for listening to the Molecular Moments Podcast.